Um, we are in Joshua chapter 22. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to get ready to hop right in. We're going to finish up chapter 22 today. We're going to begin in verse 10 and uh, kind of give us a little background of what is going on here in Joshua. This is kind of getting close to wrapping up the, the, the book of Joshua itself. Uh, Joshua has just commissioned the two and a half tribes, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh, to return back to the east side of the Jordan River. So they're going to cross back over the Jordan River to the land that was promised them to receive their inheritance that Moses uh, promised them and Joshua was sending them off. And verse 10 picks up on their journey back and begins to create a situation which we must deal with and a situation we can all learn from. In verse 10, we're told as the two and a half tribes are heading back, they built there an altar by the Jordan, that is the river, an altar of imposing size. And this altar launches an altercation within the people of Israel, which chapter, the end of chapter 22 here deals with. As we enter into the text, we're not quite sure the reason for the altar. We're not quite sure why the people of God responded in the way they did. And if you're unfamiliar with what happens here, we're going to walk through it in a moment. But we do know that as we go through the text that it would cause such a response from the people who are staying on the east side of the Jordan River that they were ready to go and make war against the two and a half tribes heading to the west side of the Jordan River. And the Bible tells us in verse 33 of chapter 22, they were going to go with the intention to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. And as I read through this event that it unfolds, one thing that kind of where my mind goes when I'm reading through scriptures, it reminds me of different things. And I'm not promoting this movie. I'm not telling you to go and watch this movie. And if you do, um, obviously I have seen it. Uh, but it reminds me of the movie Anchorman with Ron Burgundy and Will Ferrell. And, yeah, so... There's a scene in this movie where all the news teams in, it's San Diego, right? Yeah, all the news teams in San Diego meet in this alley like a West Side Story type of event. And then it ends up in this huge battle and this huge, you know, outlandish uh, scene. Well, the next event, they're in Ron Burgundy's office and they're discussing, evaluating the situation. And Ron Burgundy's evaluation is, boy, that escalated quickly. Um, I mean, I really got out of hand. Brick, you killed a guy. And uh, that's kind of where I see this event in verses 10 to the end of chapter 22. It just escalated. It's kind of what's going on here. But here's the thing. Even though that, that movie's funny and we read this and there's kind of some comparisons there, we all have the danger of what happens here of things escalating quickly and getting out of, the hand, out of hand. Hopefully not to the point of us killing someone. But we're going to see in in verses 10 through the remainder of the chapter, the dangers that emerge, the results of those dangers, and how we can prevent them in our own life and the people's lives around us. So we're going to walk through this together in a second, but let's pray and uh, just ask God's Spirit to do what only it can do in our lives. So Father, we come before you and we submit to you. Father, I humble myself before you. You are the King, you are the Lord of Lords. Lord, the mountains bow down before you. The creation sing your praises. They praise the name of the Lord. Let my heart praise your name this morning. Father, let our hearts be tuned to you. There's so many distractions going on in our lives, so many things we've got on our schedule, even on this day. In this moment, in this time, Lord, let us tune to you and to your words and what your spirit is wanting to do inside of us. 
Father, I know your word is from your mouth. I know it is for our, our benefit. It is to teach us, reprove us, discipline us, correct us, so we may be equipped. And Lord, I know there's not a person in this room that is immune to what takes place in this chapter and the dangers that come from those actions. So Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart that is softened. That we not just hear your word, but we apply it, we do it. So we don't deceive ourselves. I thank you, Lord, for this day. I thank you for what's going to happen here. I thank you for your presence that's been in this place as we've lifted your name up. The name above all names. Holy, holy, holy are you, God. Thank you for your mercy, for allowing us to be in your holiness. Thank you for your grace that you continue to give to us every single day. Because your mercy, because your grace and your faithfulness and your love for us, we come before you and we ask you to forgive us where we have failed you. If we haven't been worshiping you in spirit and truth, if we have come to this place with no expectation of you doing anything in our life, forgive us, Father. But do a great, mighty work. I submit to you and ask that you just remove me from this equation, Father. Just use me as an instrument of your righteousness. Let my words be pleasing to you. Let my heart's meditation be pleasing to you. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Be our shepherd. Guide us to where we need to be before we leave this place. Pray us all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to break... Again, we're going to begin in verse 10. We're going to be running through the end of the chapter, which takes you to verse 34 of chapter 22 in the book of Joshua. If you're having problems finding Joshua, it's in the Old Testament. Um, we're going to break it into four different clumps uh, as we walk through this text. And we're not going to read the entire text just for uh, the sake of time, but we're going to draw out what is going on here. You can read it later today if you like. The first clump we have is the recognized issue, which begins in verse 10 and runs through verse 12. The word Lord says, and when they came to the region of Jordan, and they, speaking of these two and a half tribes that are heading to the west side of the Jordan River, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing side. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Again, at this point in time in this event, we are unsure on what exactly is taking place. We don't know why the altar is being built. We don't know why the brothers... Uh, decided they were going to go to war. All we're told at this moment in time is that it was an altar uh, of imposing side by the Jordan River. And the significance of this altar is the placement of it. In Joshua chapter 4, when the Israelites first came into the Promised Land, after they crossed the Red Sea and God parted and they came across on dry ground, they built a memorial altar. And that altar was built, verses 23 through 24, chapter 4 in Joshua, to remind all the people that the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So we come in Joshua chapter 22 and there's this new altar construction and it is a 
appearing to be built in disregard to the altar that was built in Joshua chapter 4. We read it as an altar of imposing sight. It's to say that this was something that could not be overlooked. It was visible from both sides of the Jordan River, which the Jordan River would get fairly large, particularly in the rain season. But what we don't know is what this blatant symbol meant. We aren't told that yet, and neither do the people of Israel who remain in the land. And so that leads us to the second thing, and that's the response and the accusation which takes place in verses 13 through 20. Now, going back to the beginning of the chapter, it seems that Joshua had a fear in these two and a half tribes going across the Jordan River because of the physical division the river would create with the people who remained in the land. And that fear seems to be playing out as the tribes are ready to go to war. And they say in verse 11 that the people on that, the side that belongs to the people of Israel, meaning themselves, that we're on the side that belongs to God's people. What this event has created, it is now an us versus them mentality and is beginning to develop as the nine and a half tribes now see the two and a half tribes again People they went to battle with, people they went to war with, they are now perceiving them as the enemy and they're perceiving that they are leaving the inheritance which God has given them. This perception becomes so big for the people who remain in land that they go and find this guy named Phinehas, and you can find him in verse 13. They go and find Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, to step in and to help them with this situation. You may not be familiar with Phinehas, that's fine, I'm going to let you know who he is. We first encounter him in Numbers chapter 25. In Numbers chapter 25, the, the, it's right after the event of Balaam and his talking donkey and Beor. Well, the Israelites begin to intermarry and intermingle with the people of the Midianites, which God strictly told them not to do. And it got to such a point that there was an Israelite that brought a Midianite woman in through the camp for everyone to see and took, him to, took her to his tent. Now God brought a plague upon the camp of Israel. As Phinehas the priest sees this Israelite man uh, just parading his Midianite woman through the camp, he decides he's going to take action. So he goes and grabs his spear. This is Numbers chapter 25. It's a really good bedtime story. He goes and grabs his spear, goes into the Israelite man's tent and thrusts his spear through the man and the woman and kills them both. And the curse is lifted off the camp of Israel. And God says that Phinehas had a righteous jealousy for God and he blessed Phinehas. So here in Joshua chapter 22, the same Phinehas, is summoned to come and deal with this issue. Because I imagine the conversation is, did you hear what the two and a half tribes did? Did you hear about the altar they built in complete disregard for the altar that's already there that we built together? Did you hear, who, what, what are we going to do about this? Well, let's get Phinehas. Maybe he'll get his spear and he'll kill them all. Because they wanted to destroy them. And so... Phinehas is brought in because this perception of this event, this altar, is believed to be similar to Numbers chapter 25 and another event in Joshua in chapter 7 dealing with Achan's unfaithfulness, which led to the defeat at Ai. This altar is not going to be taken lightly. In verses 16 through 19, in part of the second clump, Phinehas delivers the accusation concerning the altar. And there's three accusations that the two and a half tribes have made a breach of faith, 
They've turned away from God, and they've rebelled against God. And their claims are legitimate. We can't argue with their claims because they back them from the law that they had. In Leviticus chapter 17, verses 8 through 9, there's a specific instruction for all of God's people not to offer any sort of burnt offering or sacrifice anywhere but at the tabernacle. And it is believed by the nine half tribes remaining that this particular altar was built as a place to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. And so they bring up that charge in Leviticus chapter 17. It's also based upon Deuteronomy chapter 13, in which God instructed his people that if any of, of God's people would turn to false gods and begin worshiping them, they should be put to death. Hence, Phinehas is brought in to bring the death penalty to the death sentence. The understanding is that this new altar that is built is going to bring a curse upon all of Israel, like what happened in Numbers 25 and what happened in Joshua chapter 7. So it appears, it appears the Israelites have learned some lessons from their past mistakes. They've definitely learned from Numbers 25 that God does not uh, go along with reopen rebellion against Him. They seemed to learn something from Gen Joshua chapter 7, but they didn't seem to learn it to it in its entirety. One thing they didn't learn from Joshua 7 is that we should not seek or we should not take action without seeking the Lord. The result of this plan is apparent in Joshua 22 and without, throughout Scripture, is that when we do not seek the Lord, in whatever course of action we take, we only seek trouble. So Phinehas and the ten chiefs have this resolution in verse 19 based upon their perception of what is going on. Again, we have to remind ourselves, they are not aware of why the altar is built and neither are we at this moment in time. But in verse 19, Phinehas is speaking. He says, but now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. Do you see what he's, he's getting at? So if, if your inheritance isn't worthy of where you should live, then why don't you come back to where God actually is? Why don't you come back into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle and the Lord's presence is? See, it's a me versus them mentality. And take for yourselves a possession among us, only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Speaking of the altar that is already in place from Joshua chapter 4. Did not Achan the son of Zerah bring faith, break faith in the matter of the devoted things, and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish alone for his iniquity? Why don't you come back, guys? I know you, Moses said you could go there, but really, this is where God is. This is the good place. This is the winning side. So come back over. And then the reality of the situation happens, which is the third clump of, of this passage in verse 21. Then the, Reuben, the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said, in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, He knows. And let Israel itself know. That double emphasis is to let them know of their shock, but also their passion and allegiance to God. If, this is the accusation, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. In other words, if we did what you said we did, kill us all. 
for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. So they're aware of the, of the accusations from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that brought against them. Verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and the people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. So this was the fear. This is what Joshua feared. And the people, these tribes feared to themselves is that if we go across, as we go down the line, as new generations come about, there might become a time when one generation forgets that we are actually a part of Israel, even though we have the Jordan River between us. You might forget that we are God's people, part of his promise within his covenant, and we receive the inheritance. They have this fear of the future, which is actually taking place in the present. The tribes... Phinehas and the ten chiefs that come out, they speak of it's our land and it's our place. It's our promise. And we're the whole assembly of God. Why don't you come back to where God actually is? So it's already beginning to come to fruition, this fear that the two and a half tribes have. Verse 26, now we get some understanding. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our sins in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy, not the original, but the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before this tabernacle. So the two and a half tribes want to make sure that they understand what was actually happened. Robert Hubbard writes concerning this event that silently this imposing structure reminds every Israelite who passes, whether traveling east or west, that the Lord is God over all Israel, wherever they are located. And that brings us to the final clump of this event, and that is the fourth clump, which is the resolution of the situation, which begins in verse 30 and runs through the end of the chapter. What happens is Phinehas decides that what they've said is true and what they said is good. And he agrees that this altar is beneficial. He can probably see it because it's, it's taken a, an impact within the current generation. So he takes the news back with the ten chiefs, and they tell all Israel what this altar means, what it is meant to be, and they begin praising God, verse 34, for they, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. That's all great. It seems like an event that got really out of hand really quickly for some strange reason. But the Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed, meaning it's from the mouth of God. It's the voice of God. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training of righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So what in the world... Does this particular passage of Scripture 
do for us that we might be equipped for every good work. Every individual, whether a believer or unbeliever, has a very unique but similar quality that is often flawed and that we can all jump to conclusions. This incident didn't start with the tribes returning to the land. That was a promise that was given to them going back to the book of Numbers from Moses. This event didn't even happen because an altar was built. This event was launched because in verse 11, the people of Israel heard it. And then if you jump to verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard it, they heard of something happening, of something going on. They did not give the benefit of the doubt to their brothers in arms. We have to keep in mind, these men that are returning had just fought seven years together with the other tribes that are bringing this accusation. They had spent a lifetime together going through difficulty and growing and seeing God being faithful. But they heard of something happening. They did not seek to understand what was happening. Hence, I think that's why God doesn't give us the reason for it till the very end of the chapter. But when the Western tribes heard what the Eastern tribes did, they drew this conclusion that we're right and they're wrong. And it's not because God has revealed it. It's simply because that is our perception. There's a pastor in a very small town, pastor in a local church, and God put a burden upon his heart that he wanted to reach the people within the community. Being a small town, it had its own small town issues, just like all towns do. But in this particular town, the one thing that was corrupting the town and taking over the town was people were turning to alcohol, becoming addicted, and families being broken apart. Marriages were falling apart. And so this preacher began praying, God, how do I reach these people? How do I reach these people struggling with alcohol? How do I reach these people struggling with addiction? Because you alone can free them from this captivity. And as he prayed and sought after God, God laid it upon his heart. He placed a burden to go to where the people were. See, the reality is the, the people that are struggling with alcohol and, and this sort of addiction weren't coming to church. They weren't coming to hear the word of God. So the preacher understood that God was telling him he needed to go to the bar. There's only one bar in this town, and that's where everyone gathered. So every night that the bar was open, except when the preacher had to be at church, the preacher was at the bar. He'd drive his car down there, he'd park it in the parking lot, he'd walk in and he would spend hours with the people in the bar, getting to know them, building a relationship, talking with them. At the end of the night, he would drive some home if they needed a ride, he'd offer others to pay for their taxi, making sure everyone got home safely. Well, weeks went on and on and on of this happening. And being a small town, well, you know how small towns work. Small towns talk. And so there was a particular woman who went to this pastor's church who caught word that he was at the bar every single night. And so she came to the conclusion this pastor is a worthless drunk, just like the rest of the drunks in the town. And so she began spreading the news that the pastor is drinking, he's, he's falling to alcoholism, and, and we can't have him as our pastor anymore. He can no longer shepherd us into the presence of God. Well, the pastor began hearing about the news going around town and then hearing about who was actually spreading the news more rapidly than anybody else. He decided he was going to confront this woman. So he goes to her and tells her he's heard of what she's been saying about him. And he tells her that this is what is actually happening. This is what I'm doing. This is what God has led me to do. And, 
And I'm helping these people. I'm taking them home. I'm building relationships with them. And, and he shared about some of the fruit that's coming from that, that. Some of those people are actually showing up on Sunday morning. The woman looked at the pastor and said, you know what? You can say all you want. But we see your car there every night. And perception is reality. We know what you're doing and what you're trying to hide. It was broke the pastor's heart. So we went back and he started praying to God and kind of those arguments we can have with God at times, you know. God, you told me to do this and this is happening. And as he spent time praying and seeking God and on how to handle this situation, because not only was his relationship with this woman tarnished, his relationship with the community is becoming tarnished. Well, God gave him the answer. So what the pastor decided to do is he was going to still go to the bar because that was the burden that God placed on his heart. He was still going to go there and witness and evangelize and, and testify about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Instead of parking at the bar, he's going to park at this woman's house. So he'd park his car at the woman's house. He would walk to the bar and he would leave his car there overnight and come back in the early hours and get it after he had gotten everybody else home safely, and then he would drive home. Well, you can imagine in a small town when people know people's cars, what people start saying and the pastor and this woman were doing. Well, the woman caught word as someone asked her, are you and the pastor in a relationship? We see he spends, his night, he spends the night at your house frequently. She got so upset, she went to the pastor and started yelling at him and cursing him all in the name of Jesus, I'm sure. And when she got done, he looked at her and he said, well, I guess perception is reality. We need to understand the things we see in life and the way we jump to conclusions about things in life are all flawed by our sinful nature. We see things a particular way. We evaluate them. We come to a conclusion about them based upon the little information we have. And in chapter 22, what we see is the danger of jumping to conclusions based upon our sinful and flawed perception. The first danger that happens is it creates a division. The river was already there. That didn't create the division. The division is that one party assumed another thing about another party, and whether it was true or not, they were going to act upon that assumption. And so their views were changed about these people they just shared life with. Second danger is it created a conflict. As the people of God would be united under the name and the hand of the Lord, but because of this false assumption and this jumping to conclusion, this conflict emerged that we need to call in the big dog Phineas to step in and handle the situation. Final danger is it created an irrational decision. The Western tribes feared God, which was a good thing, but they failed to seek God's wisdom. In turn, they acted out of their perception of the event. So we need to understand our perception is always going to be flawed by our sinful nature. This altar, as we come to understand by the end of chapter 22, is not an act of rebellion, but a statement of faith. We all do this, though. We all jump to conclusions we all spread gossip. We all assume that we have all the information to arrive at the position that we're in at this moment. How do we combat that? 
because we all do it. What we see in chapter 22, the only way to not arrive to a false conclusion is communication. The way they came to understand what was actually going on is the people came to the other group and they communicated to find understanding. Here's the problem, though. We all are more apt to talk about someone rather than to someone. We are more tempted to say, did you hear about so-and-so? Hey, what's going on with so-and-so? I don't know how many times in ministry I've had people come up to me and ask, hey, did you hear about, or do you know about? And I'll admit, I have been tipped into fall into this line of conversation myself. Hey, what's going on with? That's exactly what happens here. Is something was heard, and then conflict emerged, division emerged, and an irrational response emerged. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, that you shall not spread a false report. An article in Christianity Today describes gossip as the essential nature of gossip is that it talks about people instead of to them. Gossip leaves out all that is unique and glorious in a person and reduces him or her to an antidote, a cliché, or a stereotype. To gossip is to claim to know something about someone when you actually know nothing. And that is what happens in Joshua chapter 22. The people of God heard something. They claimed to know what it meant when they actually knew nothing. In the book of Proverbs, a gossip is frequently called a whisperer. And Proverbs says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. The remedy to gossip is to communicate with one another. And as God's people, we are called to seek and speak truth and to live and show grace, because that's being like Jesus, who is full of grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 14. And here's what gossip attempts to do. Gossip attempts to make us look better than someone else. If we put this in the whole picture of things, that massive clump of, of Scripture that we jumped over in about two weeks, beginning in chapter 13 and running through chapter 21 of Joshua, as Joshua is allotting the lands to the nine and a half tribes remaining in the Promised Land, we are told within that passage of Scripture that these, these groups of people did not drive out the inhabitants that dwelled in the land. We go into Judges chapter 1, and what we read is that eight, eight of the nine and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan were unfaithful in driving out the remaining inhabitants of the land. And this is what gossip and jumping to conclusions do. It allows me to amplify someone else's sin over my own. I can talk about their shortcomings and I can talk about their failures. And then what I see is I can lift myself up because I'm not as bad as them. The people of God, these nine and a half tribes that came to confront the two and a half tribes, had their own issues to deal with. But instead of dealing with them, they wanted to gossip and jump to conclusions. And where this road goes is when I gossip and when I jump to conclusions about something, I'm going to come to a place where I am going to judge that person. And Jesus says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eyes. When we gossip about one another, it leads to judging. And where judging leads is to self-righteousness. I'm right, you're wrong. And the way to avoid gossip and jumping to irrational conclusions and making irrational decisions is to seek the source. One failure that these tribes had in going to this confrontation is they never sought God. They never sought His wisdom. And so that's what we have to begin first. If we hear about something that paints another individual in a negative light, the first place we got to go is God. We have to have His wisdom. We have to have His eyes to see this event, this incident, clearly. After we sought God, then we go to seek the source. Then we go talk to that person, and we try to come to understanding. We try to figure out, is this truth or not? But what we want to do, because some of us are so fearful of confrontation, instead of going to our brother or sister in Christ, we want to talk about them instead. And it just fuels a flame. Shortly after Eth was born, we were in Illinois in ministry. I was the minister of worship and students. And uh, we were at that church for nine months. <clears throat> we came in a situation, we believe God led us to there, and I believe, I believe that's still today, that God led us there, because we learned a lot from that situation. We came in a situation and not aware of what was going on, but in month seven, so we were there seven months, at that point, in month seven, Jamie and I were still, we consider ourselves a, a young married couple. We, we just had our first newborn child. We didn't have family around us at all. Month seven, the situation at the church we were at got so out of hand that we had to call in someone from the Illinois Baptist State Association to come in and do some ministry of reconciliation and then working through this conflict problem is by the time he got there and began working through it and meeting with people is that the fire had been so lit and the fuel had been poured on it so much that people were not at a place where they were willing to talk to one another. It got so out of hand and, and people were really mad at the pastor and the direction he was taking the church but they began driving four hours to where the pastor was a pastor at before just to see if they could gather up some information because they weren't Facebook savvy, so they had to physically go there. And they would bring those into these meetings that were supposed to be meetings of reconciliation. Instead of seeking reconciliation, they brought accusations. Well, we heard, we heard this, and I heard this about you, and that's all the meetings ended up being. That's the, the ministry they're from the state association, you could never get the meeting to turn from accusing to loving and showing grace. It was, we heard, we heard, we heard. And a lot of times we act on what we hear more than what we know. And there's danger. It was about to bring destruction here in, verse, in chapter 22. Well, 
Eventually, what happened, we were there nine months. Uh, the pastor left shortly in about month eight. Uh, he was excused. The church gave him a nice little uh, package to go away. Uh, we left in month nine. We were also excused because we were tainted by the pastor. And so they gave us a nice little package to go away. In a town of about 200 plus, this church was averaging 150, and on Easter we would average over 300. By the time we left, the church went from averaging 150 plus to averaging just over 30 in a matter of weeks. This is the danger and destructive nature of gossip. It causes division, it creates conflict, it jumps to irrational conclusions which lead to irrational behaviors, and it destroys people. This is what is about to happen in chapter 22. Because when we gossip and jump to conclusions, it can only lead to destruction. Verse 33 of chapter 22, Phinehas and ten chiefs were coming to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. What can we take from this? The Bible says that the beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. In other words, it's like breaking a dam that's keeping homes and families safe and allowing the waters to drown them. Instead of engaging in negative talk, if, if someone comes to you and says, hey, did you hear about? And it's a negative thing. There's a, difference thing. There's a difference in sharing a positive thing. Hey, did you hear what Jackson did? And, you know, did you hear about Jackson? I mean, there's a difference there, right? We all understand that. One leads to praise. So if you want to gossip good things about Jackson and I and Jason, go right ahead, right, Jason? Yep. Yeah, do that. But if you hear something negative about something, something that, that is not lifting someone up, then just shut it down right there. Just shut it down. Even if it's a believer in particular, but if it's unbelievers, then I'm not really interested. And if they keep being persistent, here's what you have you actually talked to so and so? Have you gone to the source and to see if there's actually truth in this accusation? And teenagers, you need to hear this because, man, I'm glad I'm not in middle school anymore. Gossip destroys people. And so why be a part of destruction when you're called to lift people up? But adults, we're just as bad. We're called to lift people up and lead people to Christ. Now, if you were to hear something about a brother or sister in Christ, Jesus actually gives us a plan of action. In Matthew chapter 18, instead of talking about that, Jesus says, if we hear something of a brother or sister in Christ in a negative light, we are to go to that brother and sister in Christ, and we are to seek out the truth and see if there's any validity to the situation. If there is, Jesus goes on. As a brother and sister in Christ, we confront them in love. We want the best for them. We're not going to tear them down. We're wanting to lift them out of this situation. If, Jesus goes on, if 
Your brothers and sisters in Christ will not listen to you after you confront them about a sinful behavior. What you're to do is not to talk about them, but you grab another brother and sister in Christ to go with you to that individual and confront the situation again. The Bible then says, Jesus goes on to teach in Matthew 18, if that person, if there's validity to whatever that negative thing is, if there's validity to it, and they won't listen to the two witnesses who come to them, then you take the person before the church. And I'll be honest, I've yet to see this in a family or business meeting at church where we bring someone before the church and say, look, this is what's going on. This is what we've heard. We know it's true. They did not deny it. We as a church need to take action. Jesus goes on to say that if they will not listen to the church, then you are to treat them as an unbeliever. He says Gentile, which is what that means. Does not mean you kick them out. You love on them. But most likely what happens is people eventually leave the faith and leave the church because they feel they're being judged for their sinful habits or sinful actions. You know what? We all have sin in our life. We all have things we're wrestling with. We all have things that God is working on us and molding us and shaping us into holiness and perfection. The only reason I would tear you down is so I can look past my own shortcomings. And the only reason you will tear anybody else down is so you can become blind to what God's trying to do in your own life. That's what gossip does. You may be here today and you're a believer and like, well, I, <laughs> I don't even know if I believe in all this. I don't even know what this has to do with me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, God is not your God yet, but you're seeking that out. You're trying to figure that out. Let me tell you what chapter 22 has to do with you. You have one group of people who made a false assumption, came to a false conclusion, and then began judging another group based upon that false assumption and conclusion. And then the truth came out. The reality of what Scripture says, there's going to be a day where every human being on this planet will stand before the one who does not have a flaw or lack in judgment. We are all going to stand before the one who knows everything about us. He knows where our soul is with Him, where our relationship with his, is with Him. He knows where our heart is with Him. He sees it all clearly. He's not tainted by sin. And then he will bring a final judgment on every single individual. And the Bible says that one who's going to judge all loves all. And his judgment is going to be whether or not we are his children, whether or not we know him as our God. And the Bible says that when we confess Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we find forgiveness through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, we are given the Spirit and we become children of God and we become owned by God. So when we stand before the one who will judge y'all, He will look at us, even though we may have wrestled with sin our entire life, He will look at us not in our sin, but in the full righteousness of Jesus Christ. And He'll say, welcome home. But if you're here and you're not in a relationship with Jesus Christ, He will look at you in your sin and He will tell you away from me. And that can change this morning. The Bible says that if I admit I'm, I'm a sinner, if I admit I do things I shouldn't do, that's what sin is. I do things I know I shouldn't do, but I still try to do them. That's sin. 
And I admit that I, I struggle with that and I wrestle with that. But I believe God loves me so much he sent his only son to die for my sin. And he did on a cross. And he rose again three days later. And witnesses saw him alive. And I believe that to be true. I don't have to fully understand it all. But I believe God loves me that much. He wants me that much. The Bible says, when I believe in my heart and I confess my mouth, I will be saved. So that may be you here this morning. You may need to come down the aisle and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. When I stand before the God who's going to judge everyone, I want him to see me as his own. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already made that decision. And maybe you've been tempted to gossip, to respond on things you're hearing. And you need to come before the Father and kneel down and repent. Ask God to give you courage to go to that person and ask for their forgiveness. Maybe you're here and you're wrestling because someone else is gossiping about you and is tearing you apart. You can't focus on God because you're so focused on that. And you just need to come before the Father and submit that to Him and hand that over to Him and ask Him to give you the wisdom on how to deal with that situation in a way that would glorify Him. I know we're just going to come this time of invitation. I'm going to invite Jackson to come up and lead us. I want to pray for us. And then I'm going to just ask you to respond. You can pray where you are. If you want to come and kneel before the Father, you can do that. But if you need to be saved, come down and say, Pastor Mike, I want to be saved. And we're going to talk. We're going to pray. We're going to celebrate with the heavens. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love and your mercy, Lord. Thank you that you will not allow us to continue to go down a way that leads to destruction. You will not allow us to be divided. Lord, we know that our tongue can, cannot be tamed. Father, we want to be a people that glorify you. We want to be a people that speak truth and seek truth and, and know truth and not to jump to assumptions about other people. Lord, forgive us when we try to glorify ourselves over someone else's mess. But you are good and you are faithful and you are loving and you are kind. So we come this time and we submit to you. We bow down before you. We stand and lift up your praises, knowing you're the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And Lord, I pray in this moment, if anyone here does not know you, that this be their day of salvation, that they would come down the aisle and let it be known. Thank you for being so good to us. Let's come this time of invitation, not just be hearers of your word, but doers. Praise all in the name of Jesus. Amen. I invite you to stand. I invite you to stand.